Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you? It is podcast time. Do you remember the drill? The podcast that makes economics comprehensible, understandable, and hopefully a little bit more relevant to everybody's life. Now, we haven't said that for a long, long time. I hope you are coming to terms at the end of the summer. You've had a good time. Life has treated you well. You haven't been drowned in the various biblical deluges that have afflicted Ireland over the last couple of weeks. And uh, John, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still on the mend. Not quite 100% yet, but almost there. How So the Ned is still, you're on a new diet, I presume. I'm, I had to move from a, literally a baby food diet, no fiber whatsoever, to a full-on fiber diet now. So we're rocking away. Anyway, let us move on. Let us move on. Today, I want to talk to you about overvalued and undervalued exchange rates, John. Yes. A crucial part of monetary economics that is often forgotten because so much of the world, at least our world, is on fixed exchange rates or have given away their exchange rate or have locked in their exchange rate at various different levels. But the impact of over and undervalued exchange rate is profound. It's the reason we have monetary policy. Basically, economics, macroeconomics is about two things. Imagine a boxer fighting with two arms. Yeah. One arm is monetary policy, one arm is fiscal policy, right? Yeah. Now, if you tie your currency, and I'm going to talk about this in a second, I was contemplating this, John, as I was in Pula the other day in northern Croatia. But right. If you tie your currency, like you join the euro, for example, at too high a level, your country, your economy will suffer profoundly from a lack of competitiveness. And over time, this will manifest itself in a bond crisis, Okay. We'll park that. Okay. If, on the other hand, you 
tie your currency and your economy proves to be very successful, like Ireland, over time, that undervalued exchange rate, which I believe we have, will manifest itself in asset price bubbles, far too much investment, arguably too much immigration and too much overheating. Croatia, where I am, I believe is going to have an overvalued exchange rate when they join the euro next year. And that will lead to long-term structural problems here. Whereas Ireland now has an undervalued exchange rate and our long-term structural problems are problems not of money, but of capacity. Uh, Actually, you need to explain all this and explain why Croatia are going to join the euro if they're not ready for it. And what are the implications of being undervalued exchange rate for us? But but before we get there, what's all this about Pula? And what sparked off all these musings, Mac? Well, it's because I was last night or the night before, John, I was reclining in a bar beside a statue of James Joyce. Right, okay. Okay, and the statue Reclining in a bar James, is nothing new. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, I was the reason I was reclining is the statue of James Joyce has him sitting down in Pula, a city in Istria, northern Croatia, which used to be an Italian city before the Second World War. Right. After the Second World War, the Italian population was largely driven out by the Yugoslav partisans, not least because the Italian population in this part of the world was displaying a type of proximity to fascism, which uh, the local Yugoslavs did not appreciate. Lots of nasty things were done in the Second World War in this neck of the woods. And basically, the Yugoslav partisans rushed through this part of the world, took over Istria, and they weren't giving it back to the Italians. But before the war, our friend James Joyce was here. Okay. And James Joyce arrives in 1905 to Trieste, where he's promised a job in the Berlitz, you know, that international school, English teaching school, Berlitz. And they used to have those uh, Berlitz books, you know, the travel books. Yeah, Exactly the same company. And that started its life as an English language school. And it moved into the travel because it realized that most of the people that they were trying, that were trying to learn foreign languages were just travelers, casual travelers. So that's what moved into that area. Joyce is working for Berlitz. He's supposed to get a job in Trieste, which is about 100 miles away up the road. The job never materializes. So he's arrived oh. in 1905 with a pregnant Nora. So he's, Mrs. is pregnant. He's got no money. Somebody tells him there's a job down the road in Pula, which is a city about 100 miles south, a much less impressive city than Trieste, much smaller, was an Austrian-Hungarian naval base at the time. So Joyce thought it was a little bit of a dull place. He didn't particularly like the local Slavs because there was lots and lots of Slovenes and Croats here at the time. It was run by the Austrian-Hungarians, but deep down it was still an Italian-speaking city, bizarrely cosmopolitan place. Joyce didn't particularly like it, but did quite like the cafes. So <laughs> and he, writes, anyway. yeah, he writes that he quite liked the cosmopolitan cafes and all that sort of stuff. And this is where a 24-year-old Joyce is beginning to try and get the Dubliners published, what he'd actually already written. And that okay. becomes that becomes a lifelong, well, the next decade's work for Joyce is to try and get Dubliners published took him about a decade to do. Then he gets the portrait of an artist published, he gets Dubliners published, and he's away in a hack. Yeah. But I'm sitting here 
in the same bar. And the reason he's in the bar because the bar is in the basement of the, or not in the basement, the first ground floor of the school that he used to teach in. And okay. what I'm looking at, John. In the school, a bar in a school. No, 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 the school, the, the building. It's the building right. where the school okay. used to be. I just want to be clear about that. It's the building where, the, it's a building where the school used to be. But what I'm looking at, John, is this extraordinary Roman arch. It's a huge Roman arch. I'm here because last night I saw the Arctic Monkeys, John. Nice. In a Roman amphitheater. How and were they? they were supported by Inhaler, who are friends of Lucy's. Yes, and great band. It was a fantastic band. They did an amazing job, you know, because as you know, support, support band is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the audience has come to see somebody else. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's, it's a bit of a, a wild card. You don't know yeah. what you're going to get when you walk on stage. And they were brilliant. They were brilliant. They opened it up. They have a couple of banging tunes. They just, they did what they had to do. Which yeah. Just go out, win the audience, get the audience listening to them. And I presume as the thing is about all supporting is you're trying to convert a bigger band's fan base to you. Yeah. And then the, so people go away and say, wow, you know, they were quite good at the support act. Why, who are they? Yeah. So sell they a few t-shirts on the way. Did, so they did a fantastic job. An amazing amphitheater. It's the Pula Amphitheater, which is the best preserved Roman amphitheater in the world. And the Croats have opened it up to gigs. So you're actually sitting in what does it like, sound like? It sounds like it sounds like you're sitting. Well, I don't know what it sounded like in the Colosseum, right? But imagine you're in the Colosseum, right? Yeah. Now, of course, the sound is bouncing off all the walls. That's what I was. I, I was thinking. It just sounded. It sounded brilliant. It felt brilliant. The Arctic Monkeys came on and they gave a masterclass, an absolute masterclass. You know, Alex Turner is the front man. He just has it. He's got the swagger. He's got yeah. the cockiness. He's got the voice. He's got the attitude. And they just, they played banger after banger. It was an extraordinary gig. And they played for about, about two hours. And Fantastic. Of course, they're, they're supporting us down Electric Picnic. They are supporting us down Electric Picnic next week. And yeah. uh, as I said to them on the way in, I said, listen, lads, I know you're going to be overwhelmed by the extraordinary <laughs> vibe in our tent. But you know, just try to recreate that in the main stage and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. But they were really, really very good. They, you, you forget their back catalogue is so good. He can write songs. You know, he just has it. So yeah. it, it was an extraordinary gig. So then now I am reclining after this, the day after. Of course. And I'm looking at this arch because the Romans, the way they, the Romans planned their cities, where they'd have everything was related to the amphitheatre. So the, the amphitheatre was in the centre and then you'd have coming off at these sort of, almost sort of big, big streets re- leading into the amphitheater, kind of funneling yep. people down into the amphitheater. And at the entrance of this street is the original Roman arch that I'm looking at. It was called the Arch of Sergi. It was built around the time of Jesus. And there's an amazing, I'm just looking at this thing, there's an amazing inscription. And the inscription says, Salvia Postuma Serge de Sua Pecunia, right? Which means this arch was built by the wife of Serge, whose name was Salvia. This is the interesting thing, the Sua Pecunia with her own money, right? Right. So this got me thinking about Roman money. Yeah. And in the same way as the European Union has solidified integration 
through a single currency. The Romans gave us the model, right? So the Romans had this money called the denarii. That was their base currency, where the Spanish expressions dinero comes from. You know, the right. Spanish say, you know, yeah. have you any dinero? That yeah, comes from yeah. dinari, which was the Roman silver coin, which formed the basis of the Roman monetary union. And we forget that the Roman monetary union extended, think about this, from the southern borders of Scotland to the western borders of Syria. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the western borders of the Rhine all the way down to North Africa. So in this entire empire, of course, the army kept the whole thing together, right? But what actually gelled people's perceptions of day-to-day transactions of who they were was this unified single currency. And what made Rome fantastically interesting is the Romans could never feed themselves. The city of Rome produced nothing. Mm. Like the city of Athens, neither of these cities could feed themselves. So what they were actually in the business of was persuading people to exchange grain for their coin. Right. And in so doing, willingly trying to feed themselves. It's an extraordinary situation. But also, they were the administrative center, though. So Rome was the capital, and then they had all these nodes of administrations around it. But they built what can only be described as an empire of credit. It was an extremely okay. sophisticated credit system. They had stock markets, they had joint stock companies, they had bond markets, they had banks, they had mortgages, they had everything. And it kind of struck me, I was wondering about Salvia, who's the wife of mm. Sergei, who made the arch with her own money. And I'm trying to figure out how she did that. Like, How did a woman in an incredibly patriarchal system figure out how to make enough money of her own in order to build the arch? I haven't got to that conclusion yet. I have no idea. Right. But that intrigued me. And what also intrigued me, John, was the nature of monetary unions. How do they stay together? Are there problems there? And the reason I'm thinking about this is that Croatia, the country that, as you know, I spend a huge amount of time in, love, really like the people, they're joining the euro in January at a very, very high exchange rate, which is 7.7 kunas to the euro. And I'm not sure that this country can sustain that high level of exchange rate. Now, Mark, there's, there's a load of stuff in this that I need you to explain. But let's come back and talk about that after this. Absolutely. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. So, Mark, you're saying that Croatia are joining the Euro, the Eurozone from January. Are they the only ones joining this year? And also, what does that mean for the Euro? Is it is it going to weaken it in any sort of way? Or explain that one to me. Well, a very interesting question, John. I think the Croats are joining in January. They're the only ones joining at this stage. But now implicit in all European treaties is the objective that anybody who joins the European Union is on the path towards joining the euro. It's part of the package. Mm. Now, Denmark and Sweden have opted out of that. They opted out of it both by referenda in the late 90s, early 2000s, because the Scandinavians have always had a a slightly semi-detached attitude to European integration in terms of monetary integration. They've always said, look, we'll keep our currency. We'll go along with everything else. We'll keep our currency just in case, right? Because yeah. the currency, your currency is the most important price in the economy. It's by far and away, if you're a small open economy, your currency prices everything because it prices your imports and your exports. And that's basically how you live and die in a small open economy. And with the exception of Germany, and Italy and France. You can almost argue the rest of Europe are all small open economies. Maybe Spain, you could argue, is a big economy. But yeah. in general, the European Union is made up of small open economies. That's the first thing. So there's a sort of a, a legal obligation to move towards joining the euro. Okay, And I can understand why. The reason is that it solidifies the club from the central point of view, but also from the peripheral countries that want to join the euro there's kind of a notch on the bedpost sort of idea of join the Euros. That's what you have to do, right? That kind of marks up your 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 virility as an economy. Okay, right. Okay. Now, I also think that there's a there's a huge implicit danger in this, and the implicit danger is that certain countries that have had hyperinflation or have had experienced lots of economic trauma. Croatia being one of them after the Yugoslav hyperinflation. Yugoslavia had the highest hyperinflation ever recorded, higher than Weimar Germany. 
Right. So this part of the world was destroyed by hyperinflation in the 80s and then again in the 90s. So right. How come Croats, was that? How, how did that happen? Well, the, in the 80s, it was a, basically they began to print money. After Tito died in 1980, there was a series of conflicts within the various republics. Yeah. And the Bank of Yugoslavia just continued to print money willy-nilly. And of course, what happened was Yugoslavia wasn't capable of producing goods commensurate with the amount of money that was being printed. So you got hyperinflation, right? Okay. Gotcha. Typically, what happens is if you can produce goods commensurate with the amount of money you're printing, then it means that you probably won't experience inflation even if you're printing all the time. But the Yugoslavs printed all the time and they just ended up in a hyperinflationary spiral. And then in the 1990s, Milosevic printed loads of money to finance the wars in Bosnia and Croatia, etc. So they had two bouts of hyperinflation. The Croats right. have a keen memory for that and have always wanted to avoid that. That's number one. Number two, joining the euro is kind of like another accolade in the process of becoming a proper European country. At least they feel this way. So in order to get away from their Yugoslav stroke Balkan past, joining the Euro is, you know, you're joining the rich man's club. Yeah. But if you join the rich man's club and you're a poor man, you have a problem. As the great expression is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yes. Right? Yeah. Now, yeah. the problem is you could be at the table, but you're still on the menu in the sense that if your economy is too weak. Hang on a second. How do you gauge a weak economy or a strong economy? Well, the first one is income per head. Okay. So if you're miles away from the average, well, then you're pretty weak. Second one is your budget deficit. If you're continuing to run a budget deficit, it means you can't balance your books. Yeah. So you're borrowing all the time. Right. Okay. Third one is your trade deficit. If you are running a massive trade deficit, it means that your economy isn't producing. So your imports are much, much greater than your exports, right? Then you have to attract in capital from elsewhere to cover your costs. So you're running a current account deficit. Yeah. It means that you're borrowing consistently. And that will mean that your debt GDP ratio is rising all the time, right? So these are your particular metrics, okay? So why are they joining then? <laughs> if this ain't uh, going to work. Now, let's come back, right? And of course, the other really fundamental metric is, are you experiencing immigration or emigration? Yeah. A country experiencing emigration means that its own people are moving away. The brain A country drain. experiencing immigration means that other people are coming to you. So yeah. that's a great asset test of economic success, right? Now, what happens is if you price your exchange rate too high for economic virility ideas, but also maybe because a huge amount of the economy has got debts in foreign currency, and if you devalue, those debts will double or they'll, those debts will go up by the level of devaluation. So you're worried about that. You're kind of caught in a trap. However, I would argue that it is better to devalue your currency and then fix to the euro and achieve a competitive gain against the rest of the world in order to reverse all those imbalances like your budget deficit, your current account deficit, your immigration, to give your economy the chance to grow. So why don't they do that then? Because I think that, remember I talked about the good room, right? Yes. Remember the good room, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. My granny had a good room, which was there to impress the good people, the posh people. Yeah. My granny's good room was so good, I wasn't good enough to go into it. Yeah. Right? We had and, one of those as well. It was full of, we had it with a cabinet full of silver and Waterford crystal. 
I had no idea what they were there for. You ever used I'll tell you, my granny had a bragging wall in the good room, right? <laughs> and the bragging wall had all these sort of, you know, university parchments and things. Yeah. And there was one one, I swear to Jesus, right? There was one in my granny's thing. There was a fella in, a, in one of those mortarboard hats, right? Yeah. With a university thing, a black and white photos from the 20s. Nobody has a rash as who he was. <laughs> you think granny bought it in the sale of work and just put it up and pretend it. <laughs> so imagine that sort of mentality, right? <laughs> imagine that sort of mentality, okay? That basically you want to be with the big boys. You want to be in the good room. And you take that as your fundamental starting point on countries that are slightly insecure about themselves, right? Yeah. And therefore, rather than saying to the ECB and the Council of Europe, look, guys, we want to join the euro, but look, our economy isn't strong enough for this rate. What they do is they assume away, they think everything's going to be fine. Now, you join the euro and then you're, then you're done, then you're in. Yeah. You can't get out or you can get out. But if you do get out, unless you get out at a time when the rest of the euro is collapsing and you basically say, well, look, we've no choice. If yeah. you get out in your own accord, then, of course, it has huge ramifications for people's perceptions of you. Now, interestingly, in 2012, when the euro looked as if it was going to collapse, right, because there was an Italian crisis, a Greek crisis, a Spanish crisis, yeah. our interest rates were 13%. I always argued, look, if this thing collapses, right, from this inside out, well, yeah. then uh, that's okay. Well, let's figure it out a way. Why? Because Ireland had a current account surplus. We, had, we were moving into a situation where the economy was recovering. The situation was entirely different. So you can actually do it. But the question is, for a small country, you shouldn't be taking unilateral moves. But if it happens, you've got to figure things out because... Sure. Because in effect, shit happens and you've got to be ready for that. But to come back to the Croats, so the Croats, like the Greeks before them and the Italians now, are suffering or will suffer, I believe, under this very, very high exchange rate. And the economy will be strangulated simply because it's so hard to compete with everybody else. And what will happen in a country like Croatia is they'll say, okay, we won't compete in an industrial scale, but we always have tourism. Right. But the problem is that nobody ever gets rich on tourism because tourism is a low productivity, high labor intensive activity, number yeah. one. And number two, it's seasonal. So it's only sure. four yeah. months of the year or six months maximum, right? So it's always a nice add-on tourism, but it can never be the engine of growth. And I think what basically happens is if you fix too high, your industrial side of your economy is too unproductive vis-a-vis -vis Germany. Yeah. So what you do is you overburden your entire growth rate on things like tourism and like natural resources. And ultimately, they're not sufficient to keep you going every year. So that means, therefore, that you run current account deficits, you have high levels of emigration, and you have intermittent bond crises where the market says, hold on a second, these guys will not be able to pay their debts. And this is what happened in Greece and in Italy and whatever. Now, the ECB will come up with various little jiggery-pokery ways of militating against bond crisis by buying bonds, etc. But the underlying problem remains the overvalued exchange rate. Now, that's the Croatian thing. Let's yeah. look at Ireland, because okay. Ireland's in an opposite situation, right? So if but, you look at the Irish economy, what you have is overheating, yeah. house prices going through the roof, yeah. Asset prices going up. Yeah. Significant levels of immigration, people coming in. 
Yeah. Huge, huge inward investment. Yeah. All of this hitting an economy that only has a certain capacity. Right. right okay. it's in, so, so Ireland is characterized by bottlenecks everywhere, bottlenecks in transport, bottlenecks in public infrastructure, bottlenecks in housing. Right. All the problems Ireland has are problems of capacity. When we were young, Ireland's problem was always problems of money. We didn't have enough money to do the things we wanted to do. Now Ireland is awash with money. And what's actually holding us back is we don't have physical capacity to do it. So you're saying that Ireland's exchange rate, even though we're, we're a euro, is kind of undervalued. Completely. But, but, so but if what, we had what does our that own mean? Like, and how do you measure that? So if we had our own exchange rate, right? Yeah. What would happen when the economy starts to grow very, very quickly? Like, so like we've been growing five, six, seven percent, mm. even on the most conservative basis for ages, right? What would happen then is the local central bank would increase interest rates, increase real interest rates. Right. Irish interest rates now are minus eight percent. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's everything is designed to flood capital into the country, right? And therefore, everything is designed to squeeze the housing market, and everything is designed to elbow out the young people from the housing market by pushing up housing prices. Just I'm just using housing. Sure. Use sure. traffic as traffic is another great example. Right? Yeah. Traffic no, but housing, housing is is particularly uh, important. It's particularly opposite. Okay. Yeah. So what would happen in the case that you had your own exchange rate? Like, just say hypothetically, you had. The central bank would raise interest rates, would bear down on, by raising the cost of borrowing, would bear down on borrowing, would take the steam out of the domestic economy. That raising interest rates would also raise your exchange rate. Let's say we had the punt. The yeah. punt would rise very, very rapidly. A rapidly rising punt would mean that Ireland is very expensive. So all that capital yeah. that's flowing into multinational investment would actually begin to have a second thought about going into a country like Ireland. Mm. And that would, in a country like Ireland, which we've been obsessed by bringing levels of unemployment down because we have the trauma of the 80s. But right now, we probably have to figure out what's the right level of employment? What's the right level of capacity? Can we continue on driving the engine in second gear, but in full throttle, which is exactly what we're doing? Right. Or does somebody need to actually put on the brakes and say, hold on a second? But the problem is, without monetary policy, you can't put on the brakes. So this is the fundamental problem of being part of, of the Eurozone. It's the fundamental opportunity and the fundamental problem. So okay, the opportunity so, so is... What, can, what kind of tools can the European Central Bank use? I mean, and, and is there an argument for some sort of, I know this goes against the whole idea of the Euro, but some sort of two-tiered system? Well, a, a dual exchange rate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that... There's so much political capital invested in the euro now, it's very, very hard to change. It's a bit like when Galbraith, J.K. Galbraith, said when the conventional man is faced with the choice between changing his mind and finding the proof not to do so, he always gets busy looking for the proof. Yes. Right? So that's the idea that the people who run the show are so invested in it. But what we're seeing is that what happens is in the same way as the Croats could be condemned to years of underperformance, we could be condemned to years of outperformance and capacity constraints because the exchange rate can't adjust upwards and downwards. All this stuff is based on a thing called Mundell and Fleming, were two Canadian economists who did a lot of this exchange rate work in the 1960s, right? Now, in the United States, you have, and this is the missing pick, the ECB can't do anything, but 
in the United States, if Boston is overheating, yeah, and let's say Alabama is underperforming, taxes from are raised in Boston, federal taxes. Yeah. They get put into the federal system and then they're spent in Alabama. And that acts as the what they call the automatic stabilizer, right? So right. the American Monetary Union or the Canadian Monetary Union or the Australian Monetary Union between various provinces and territories and states works because at the core is a federal fiscal system, a federal taxation system, which acts to take the steam out of the overheating area and inject vibrancy into the underperforming area. Right. And that's why America works. Europe doesn't have yet a federal fiscal system. So there's nothing to take the steam out of Ireland and there's no central fund to inject vibrancy into Croatia or Greece or Italy or Spain or whatever country, not to mention Romania and Bulgaria and all these other countries that are going to join in time. But was is this what, I mean, we spoke about this before, about how Macron wanted to bring Europe closer together on monetary and fiscal policy. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, this is at the core. Now, the problem with fiscal federalism yeah. is you really give away sovereignty, right? right? And the European Union, at a time when nationalism is emerging in Europe, yes, yeah, are yeah. loath to try and push the envelope, as the Americans would say, to suggest, you know what we should do? We should have a federal centralized budget. Yeah. Because that will basically cause populism, nationalism to explode everywhere. Yeah. You know, because people will say, no, enough. Already, this is the problem. We see it in, in Germany. We see it in Italy. We see it in Ireland too. Irish people say, hold on a second. I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. You, yeah, know, yeah. People, you can feel people, that growing, actually. Yeah. Because people like their sovereignty. They're like, you know, you know, I mean, so my sense is that. You know, these conversations you will not have or you will not have in many European areas because they don't want to admit the elephant in the room, whereas there is a dilemma at the core of the system. Well, this will dilemma, come to a head at some stage, surely. It probably will. So at the moment, the ECB are trying to ma- massage the entire thing. So, for example, at the moment, if left to its own devices, the Italian bond market would be very, very weak. But ECB is buying bonds from the mm. Italian government, right? Which it said it would never do. So it's basically figuring out what I would say, little bits of financial jiggery-pokery to try and smooth everything over. But at the heart, and this is a dilemma, just really, again, it's always I've always thought about it, but it comes to me when I'm in a country like Croatia, when I think, mm, yeah, I understand why you're doing this for loads of geopolitical reasons, but are you ready yet? And then I look at a country like Ireland and say, look, the obvious elephant in the room is that we could cool this place down with much higher interest rates and a much higher exchange rate. But we have no sovereignty there because we've no monetary policy. Do you remember I said the boxer with the two hands, right? Yes. Imagine we're a boxer, but one hand is tied behind our back. We have no exchange rate, no monetary policy, no interest rate. So we're doing all the fighting with just one fist. And that, I think, is what's happening. And if you look at, and let's go back now to the Romans, if you look at the history of monetary union in... I love going back to Rome, the Romans. Well, for us, the year 33 AD is the year in which Christ died. Yeah. That's what we look at. 
For the Romans, it was the year in which they had their first major credit, international credit crisis, right? Where the entire financial system imploded, which is why I was wondering whether Salvia, the wife of Sergei, actually survived the first credit crisis. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about if you're swallowing around building arches, right? It's a bit like going to Barbados on your holidays, okay? (laughs) You're actually, you're you're, you're the big cheese, you know what I mean? Yeah, with cocktails in hand. You're building trophy assets, you're building trophies all around the place, right? (laughs) You're basically somebody who's got rich quick and is showing all your mates, I'm the fucking boss, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just wondered if she survived the 30, 33 AD Tiberian credit crisis, right? But my point is that always in monetary unions, there are credit crises because there's different economic realities throughout the union. If you don't have centralized fiscal system as the Canadians, the Americans, the Australians have, you're open to the potential crisis, and as always, I suspect we should go back to history, learn the lessons, listen to the past. And the next time, John, you're walking under a triumphal arch in Pula, Indeed. consider the verities and the practicalities of the monetary union. Now, just before you go, last week, Lucy McWilliams with the Golden Voice released her new track called Break My Own Heart. It went down so well because it's such a banger of a tune. We're going to play it again. So here's Lucy McWilliams, Break My Own Heart. You're never here when I'm with you But I'll be here if you want me to And just like smoke, I don't know where you go I'm trying to know the part of you That you don't know yourself Maybe I'm scared if I see inside I'll go and look for someone else And I don't understand when I take your hand And try to feel how you felt Taking a drag, I get a glance I realize that I can't help Some people love, some people fight Whatever gets you through the night Just keep your
Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.